everybody. Uh, everyone seems to be in a, in a pretty good mood, which is, which is cool. Today, uh, it's great because we're talking about um, suffering affliction and the certain death of us all today. Um, oh, uh, I just got a note, in, a word in my, my uh, headpiece. We have the technology. We're communicating uh, all across the um, church. If there's, there's, I'm just kidding. That's not true. But uh, Children's Ministry asked uh, for parents that have child 347, uh, nothing's bad happened. They just want to chat with you outside. Uh, out in the, in the lobby. They told me beforehand, so uh, don't feel embarrassed if you're, you're like, okay, let's wait three minutes and then walk out. Like, it, it's cool. It's, it's a, it's a, this is a safe place. Uh, actually, by the end of this sermon, you will know it's not a safe place. Uh, but before we get into the, the text for the day, uh, a little bit of an update on something that I'm excited to talk to you about. I mentioned it with in December, having to deal with our kind of year-end giving push, we, we always do a big year-end giving in December because giving tends to go, to go up in December, and that we were investing in the technology um, to record our services. And there was a number of reasons for that. One, um, if you're new to the church, we're a multi-site church, so we have a, uh, two other campuses, one in Gilroy, Centro Iglesia, Spanish-speaking campus, and then another additional English-speaking one in Hollister. And the Hollister early morning service, 845 service, uh, occasionally relies on a video sermon just because we have enough services now where you can't have uh, myself or one of the other pastors teaching at all of the locations. So occasionally there's a video. So that was one reason, but there's a far bigger reason. Um, we were wanting to do something called microsites. And essentially what a microsite is, is that's us taking a mini version of our Sunday service experience and taking it into a uh, community or an area where there's a group of people who may not be able to come to service at a different location on a Sunday morning. So think like an assisted living complex. Think uh, the Compassion Center the, 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 where there's a homeless shelter. Um, one of the ones that we'll be working with in the near future is there's a senior living low-income housing, Sunset Gardens, um, that on May 6th, we're going to start our sort of beta version, test run of microsite. And what we're doing is we're bringing the church service to a place where there's people who would love to come to church but are unable to. Uh, what's great about this is at Sunset Gardens, we actually have some people who attended, they used to attend South Valley, but because of physical limitations now, they're no longer able to come. So we're going to be able to, through all of your gifts, some knows how to play acoustic guitar and lead some worship songs, get, get announcement person, um, do the small group curriculum, talk about the events, and then the sermon will be brought on video. Now, that's a lot easier to do now because we've got like big giant screens that weigh 30 pounds and are like an, like an inch. But you guys remember like back in the day when like a big TV was like this thick and it had like three spotlights in the back, it was huge. And just to move it into your room, like you had to, to uh, like deconstruct the frame because the thing was too big or, or you're one of those dudes that just swears there's an angle that you can work this on. Meanwhile, your kids are crawling underneath it, facing death. And um, we can do this. And so we've invested in the, the technology, the cameras, uh, some extra, extra lighting to make sure that the, the quality of the video is good. We want the experience to be good. And that happened because of our, of our year in giving. That's one of the things that happened. Um, and so May 6th is our, our test run, beta, beta version. And we're hoping to work out the bugs to all of this. But the goal is that we would have 
uh, several microsites, both in Gilroy and in Hollister in the next coming years at places where there's people who could not come to us. Now, the ultimate goal is not just putting on a church service for people who are already Christians and who want a church service, but you embed yourself in these communities and hopefully build relationships to share the good news of Jesus Christ in these areas. And so it's an amazing opportunity. Um, a microsite isn't gonna grow like you know, no, no microsite's going to turn, I mean, even I guess it could turn into like 50 to 100 people, but the goal is just small versions brought to these specific locations, and there are people who would love to be able to go to a church service that can't, and we're going to bring it to them, and there are people who are in desperate need of hearing the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ, and we're going to find a way to get ourselves in those communities and share with them the love of Christ. So you'll be hearing more about this, um, but we're starting just the first one. I'm going to try to work out all the bugs, and then hopefully we'll get rolling with this in the next several months. So be praying about that. This is a, a big thing for us. It's a very important, critical part of the ministry. So yes, again, appreciate your prayers on that. Okay, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And 1 Thessalonians is, is essentially a letter written by Paul the Apostle writing to young Christians, new Christians in a city called Thessalonica. And he's writing to them knowing um, that they are likely to face persecution. And so we're a couple weeks into the series, and today we're going to be introduced to a different side of Paul. Paul is one of the leaders in the early church, but Paul is also one of the most brilliant, I mean, most brilliant thinkers in human history. I'm not just saying that like he's a good Christian leader, or he was an apostle that did all kinds of great things for Jesus, all of that is true. But on an intellectual level, Paul the Apostle is one of the brightest minds. The guy is a genius. When you make your list of top intellectuals to ever grace God's good earth, I mean, your list, I mean, people, you, you gotta have, you have Plato, Socrates, you got Homer Simpson, Paul the Apostle, Dostoevsky. I mean, you put the, the most brilliant minds there are, and Paul's on that list. And we're going to discover today, though, is that in addition to Paul being a brilliant thinker and genius, theological giant, he simultaneously is also a person who's extremely committed to relationships. And oftentimes when you think of the super intellectual or the genius, you picture someone who's like, you know, working away, writing books, they've closed themselves off in the library and the, their friend, my friends are the books among me. And, you know, the, the, the super, and, you know, just love Sudoku and crossword puzzles and all kinds of, some of you who love those things, you're like, I'm glad someone finally affirmed my genius level <laughs> intellect. Um, Paul is all of those things but his desire to be in relationship, to be near, to experience intimacy with other Christians, with other brothers and sisters in Christ is astounding. And the hope of today is that by Paul's deep commitment to other Christians that we would both be convicted and inspired in our commitments to one another and the mission of the church. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know we are destined for this. Now, um, if you went to Bible college, raise your hand if you went to, if, how many people went to like Bible college? 
Okay, a few people in the room. Well, I'm going to save you like the first $300 of Bible college right now. Because like, Bible college is expensive. And, and like, you, one of the first classes you take is biblical interpretation. And the fancy word for that is exegesis or hermeneutics. And some of you might be familiar with it. But like, one of the first lessons they, they teach you, and they make sure to use like three class sessions, you know, so it's like 450 bucks along the way. I'm going to do it to you in 10 seconds. Say, you could say, what, the money you save, send it my way. Just send it, send it. Send it. Um, one of the things you'll learn is that when, in the scriptures, whenever there's a therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? See, you're all exegetes, man. Um, so the question is, what is this therefore, therefore? And the story behind this section of scripture is this. Paul births this church. There's new Christians. He left them to go begin ministering in other areas, starting other churches, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in other areas. But in his gut, he knows that the Christians he left in this city called Thessalonica are going to experience persecution. And as time goes on, he begins to worry more and more about these Christians, these people, brothers and sisters, whom he loves how are they doing in the midst of persecution? Are they standing firm? Is the persecution light? Is it just kind of financial? They've lost some jobs. Or have they brought people before an, an altar to Caesar and say, burn, to, burn this incense to Caesar as a god or face death? Are they suffering? And he's worried. The language he uses is intense when we could bear it no longer. We had to find out how you were doing. Now think about this. Um, we live in the digital age. So we can find out about people like pretty quick. Text message, phone call, check, check their, their Instagram profile, see they're okay. Which doesn't mean they're okay because even when you're like miserable on Facebook and Instagram, you're just like totally eating this good food and it's like, your life is miserable. Paul wants to know how they are doing. And there's this sense, you feel it in the language. He's like, he's like a dad worrying about his kids. And if you have children, probably more so if you have teenagers because they can actually like leave the house and stuff, you know what it's like to worry about your child when you don't know how they're doing. Like let's say they're gonna be back at 9 p.m. and now it's, it's 9.45 and you text them. How are you doing? And you know, normally, they text back within like one-tenth of a second to everyone else in the world. And like you don't get a response. And you, you begin to seriously worry about your child, right? That's, you worry. Or let's say even worse. Let's pretend it's like my, my daughter. And she's dating. Okay? So she's, she's 27 and she says she's going to be back at 10 p.m. <laughs> Gonna be back at 10 p.m., 10.01, I'm praying and fasting. <laughs> and, re you know, ready, ready to kill. Um, you, know what it, you know what it's like, right? You know what it's like to worry about someone when you don't know if they're safe. This is Paul. I've left you in Thessalonica. I knew persecution was breaking out, but I don't know how you are doing. And so he wants to send Timothy to get word of how this church is doing. Now check out this last line. He's talking about um, affliction and suffering. And the last sentence here, here, he says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What are they destined for? Suffering, affliction, trial, hardship, heartache. Like, how does that work for a sermon series? You ever, you know, 
You ever go to a sermon series? Destined to Suffer. Come join us. Invite a friend. It's a seven-week study on how we have all been destined to suffer and bear our cross. No, but you know what you will hear is like seven-week study on destined to prosper, destined to succeed, destined to be blessed. Paul has had very little time with these Christians, very little time. They're new Christians. And what, is, what, what are the first things the Apostle Paul teaches these new Christians in this new church plant? He prepares them to experience affliction and suffering. Now, in your diet of what you feed first Christians, what would be on that list? I know for me, like the first thing I'm teaching new Christians, hey, you gotta, you gotta be able to articulate a solid definition of the Trinity, gotta understand the deity of Christ, you gotta da 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 But Paul says, yeah, that's good. But you know, because we've taught you, we've been destined to suffer. And that's what he, he begins to teach them. A big chunk of Christianity in the modern context, um, especially the most famous teachers, the ones who have massive platforms, the one on TV, like not all I always say this, not all televangelists are bad, not all Christian teachers with massive platforms are bad. There's certainly great ones that, that are great resources to the church at large. But a big chunk, every sermon series is like destined to prosper, destined to succeed, destined to bless. I mean, where's your destined to per- be persecuted sermon? And Paul says this is one of the first things we teach Christians is that they're gonna suffer. There's gonna be hardship in this world. When you are not prepared to suffer and your, your worldview, how you look at reality, has not been shaped by an understanding that in this world you will have trouble. Horrible things can happen to your faith. So if you always just think, for instance, that you know, God's a good God and he wants to bless me, so if I kind of live a, a morally good life and I go to church and I pay my taxes, my life, is, my, my life will be relatively good. When you believe that and then life and its pain hits you like a freight train, harder than you could have ever imagined, the, the very kind of structure that holds your reality together begins to fall apart. You, you, can't, you, you, you don't have the resources to process the suffering and pain. The first Christians presupposed that there was suffering, hardship, trial, and tribulation, and affliction in this world. They presupposed it. See, they believed that the world was caught up in a battle. And the phrase they had for this was spiritual war. There, are, there is such a thing as good and evil. And because of this conflict, they presupposed evil and suffering in the world. Modern people often wrestle with the question, if God is, is, is good, uh, how could there be suffering and evil in the world? How could uh, God allow me to suffer like this? And some of us, probably all of us, have wrestled with that question. As modern Christians, we ask, how could God allow this type of evil to continue? The first Christians wrestled with a different sort of question because they came at it from a different angle. Their question was not how can there be evil and God still be good. The first Christians asked, God, we know evil is a reality. How long before you return to judge and right the world of its wrongs? 
One question says, how could there be suffering? The other one says, how long do you allow the suffering to continue? Because they presuppose conflict in the cosmos. And so it's sort of the same wrestling, but it's coming at the wrestling from a different angle. And so when they experience suffering, their worldview and their faith wasn't shattered. But when you presuppose that as long as you be a good person and, you know, again, you go to church, you pay your taxes, you don't kick puppies, everything's gonna be good, then when life hits you, your faith is damaged. And there's many things that can happen. I'm gonna mention three, I'm gonna outline three, but there's, there's many others. If you think life is always going to be good and because you're a Christian, God's just gonna bless you materially in the present. Because remember, God is good and he does bless you and desire to bless you, but his blessings are not what we often want them to be or think they are. People just think of that in a material lens, in a present life. Now give me prosperity, now, financially or materially. But when you presuppose life is always gonna be good and it doesn't work out that way, a number of things could happen. One is you can get bitter extremely bitter, extremely fast. Because um, you look at God and say, God, you know, why is this happening to me? Y- your word says you love me and you wanna bless me, so how could you allow this to happen to me? And then it turns outward real quick. It's like you look at other people and you know, the compare game starts to happen. You go, how, look at, how can they be having that life? You know, I serve you, I give you everything. And look at so-and-so. They're rotten, and they have a great life. They're horrible. I go to church every, every Sunday. I praise your, your name. These things are happening, and so-and-so, man, they got the good life. Great spouse, great house, great car. Even their dog is awesome. Even the dog, dog is awesome. Lord, our dumb dog, Skippy, it's been five years. It still urinates on the carpet every day. God. What, they're horrible parents, and them kids are great. They get straight A's. Lord, you know my kids are rotten. How, how, you know, they're comparing. And you'll get bitter with even people you love in life because you think God somehow owed you something. And then the bitterness takes you towards him and towards others. In addition, you can begin to feel rejected Because if you think God is good and he's always going to bless you and save you from suffering, when you do suffer, you might start to believe God's left you. God has abandoned me. Or maybe God is punishing me for something wrong I've done. And I know as a pastor, probably 20 to 25% of you in this room have either felt that or are currently feeling that. The horrible thing happens and you feel abandoned, forsaken, and left by God. Or you could think he's punishing you. That some, there must be something wrong in my life and now God is punishing me for it. And the Bible says for Christians, God doesn't punish, he, he disciplines. And whom the Lord loves is whom the Lord disciplines. So in your trial, that actually, according to scripture, may not be a sign of God's abandonment, but it precisely may mean that God is more present than you, than you could ever imagine. And depending upon, you know, your upbringing and your father figure, that has a lot to play with this. If you had a good loving father figure who you knew what loving discipline looked like, you knew that even in discipline, this was done with love, and dad is disciplining you because he's actually present in your life. You know what I mean? Some, some people never had a father to even discipline them. When you are suffering 
as a Christian, you are being brought into the very identity and characteristic of Christ himself who suffers. But when you don't have that understanding, you can feel rejected. You can get bitter. Lastly, on an intellectual level, you could just lose faith because there's like a, there's, there's a, like a math breakdown. God is good and he wants to bless me. I am not blessed, therefore God does not exist. And in a sense, that's right. That God does not exist. But the God revealed in the crucified Jesus who suffers does exist. And he does bless and he does love you and he is good all of the time. But the way that works is differently, that is different than just mere prosperity in this lifetime. The Bible never promises you earthly prosperity. But Jesus does say this, in this world, you will have heartache, trial, and tribulation. But take heart, take courage, for I have overcome the world. When you don't have that framework and you suffer, man, it can, it can destroy you. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You almost have to find God all over again. It's so painful. It's the, the, the breaking down of the structure of your reality. And so Paul prepares Christians, new Christians, for hardship and affliction. It's one of the first things he does. His issue, though, is, look, I've prepared you, but I want to know, how are you doing in the midst of suffering? So he says in verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You, do you feel that intensity? When we could bear it no longer, when we needed to know how our kids were doing, we sent Timothy. Paul saying, I'd rather be alone in my sufferings than not know how you are doing. Now, there's a geographical journey. Paul is in Athens. He's got to send Timothy to Thessalonica, and then they're going to meet back up in Corinth. The one-way trip's about 220 miles. Long story short, just for Timothy to get there and get back is probably going to take about a month. So Paul's going, I, I'm going to be alone. I'm going to experience the suffering, and it's going to last for a month, but I got to know. I got to know how they're doing. I got to know how they're doing. So he sends Timothy to find out if the Christians in Thessalonica are A, suffering, and if they are suffering, are they remaining faithful? And then the good news, verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What a line. In our distress and affliction, we have been comforted. God does not promise you removal of distress and affliction. He provides a comfort that this world cannot offer in the midst of, in the center of that very affliction. This is interesting, the language Paul uses. He says, Timothy has told us you, you've been faithful. And he says, this is good news. And the word Paul uses for good news here is euangelion. And if you've been at this church a long time, you know what that means. That's the Greek word for gospel. But whenever Paul uses euangelion gospel, it's in reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But on this one occasion, Paul goes, uh, I'm gonna use the word gospel differently. 
And I found out that the Christians, they're suffering, but they're remaining faithful. They're standing on the rock of Jesus Christ, and that is good news. That's gospel good news. You just see them receiving that news going, thank you. You ever, you ever get news like that? And you, you, you don't even think your response is just, thank you, Jesus, thank you. They're, they're doing okay, thank you. It's gospel good news. And it's based upon the Thessalonians' faithfulness. Now, the word faith is a multi-dimensional, kind of multi-layered word. In scripture, it rarely, if ever, just means one thing. Faith has multiple meanings, and it's used in a variety of ways. And so when Paul says the Thessalonians are being faith, or he's heard of their faith, it means several things. There's these different components. First, faith in the biblical sense is a trust in God. And, and what I mean by that is in a relational way, we are trusting in the character of person and person of God. Faith is trusting in the character and person of God. Relational angle to, to what faith means. Second, it's belief in events. And this is probably the definition that's most lost today, but is central to the first Christians. Faith in the biblical sense is the belief in events. What events in particular? The death and resurrection of Jesus. Faith is not just trusting in God, it's the belief that in concrete historical reality, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate on a Roman cross and then resurrected. Faith is the belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, um, there's an active or verb kind of sense to this word faith. Um, and it has to do with allegiance and continuing on in allegiance to Jesus as king. So in Greek, the verb for faith is pistuo, uh, but we don't have a verb for faith in English. We don't have faithing. We don't have faithing, faith, I-N-G. Most of the time, biblical translators translate the verb form of faithing, faith, pistuo, as belief, believing. But do, can you feel the difference between um, believing and faithing? I'll give you an example. Uh, I believe in my wife. I am being faithful to my wife. It's a massive difference there. Massive difference. And so in English, I think our words fail us in that translation, but the idea of biblical faith is also faithfulness. It's I've pledged allegiance to Jesus and I will continue to do so. So when the first Christians were brought before an altar and, turned, and told to burn incense to Caesar as if he's a god and they said no upon the pain of death, they would say, I've pledged my allegiance to King Jesus. He is Lord and no one else is and I will die swearing my allegiance. That is an active, participatory, there's a, a the verb component, I am faithing, I am being faithful. So what is Paul happy about? The faith of these Thessalonians. It's all three of these. Paul is saying, thank you that you're continuing to trust in God. Yes, you're, you're, you're believing in the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and in the midst of suffering, you are remaining faithful. The way Christians suffer matters. It tells the world that even in my present circumstance and condition, Jesus still reigns. He's still king. And your pain is infused with meaning and purpose. 
This speaks loudly to an unbelieving world. So the Thessalonians are doing all three of these components, trusting in God in the relational sense, believing in the events in the historical sense, and they're in this ongoing active swearing of allegiance to Jesus, and they're living faithfully. Paul goes on, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's a clunky sentence, but essentially um, what, what the sentence is communicating is, because we heard that you're standing fast in the Lord, we now live. For those of you who have ever seen a loved one go the wrong direction, they're going the wrong direction, and you know what they're doing in their life is going to hurt them and cause them suffering. When that's happening to you, it feels as if part of you is dead. And I don't, I don't mean that to exaggerate. When, when you have a child or a loved one or someone who is precious to you clearly going the wrong way that's gonna cause themselves heart, harm and suffering, it's as if a part of you is dying. And then when they turn, it's as if you've experienced some type of new life. When the prodigal returns, it's like, I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. That was weird. And for those of you who are in a moment where the person hasn't returned, you know that feeling of what I'm talking about, the ache you have for your loved one to turn around, to know the Lord. Something in you isn't right. And so Paul says, we felt like we were dead, but since we know you're standing firm, we live. Verse nine, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your face. Again, the, atten- the intensity of that language for fellow believers, we pray earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. I mean, like, think about that. Like, for real, are you, are, like on Saturday night before church, Lord, I'm up late. I'm praying to see these Christians. I haven't seen them in a long time. I mean, granted, there's much more distance, but let's add it. Like, you know, have you ever just longed to see other Christians so much that you're, you're overwhelmed into the night praying, I want to see you face to face? Some of you, it's probably the opposite. You know, you're like, up to, oh, Lord Jesus, I know Sunday's tomorrow. I've been praying night and day. I don't want to see that person at church. Oh, Lord, you know my heart. You know how much they annoy me, Lord. I don't want to see them face to face. May they find another church, another good church where they could learn about you in another city, another, 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 I'm going to claim it in faith, another state, Lord. And by the way, if you've been a Christian a long time and have experienced the brutal divisions that happen in churches, that actually isn't an exaggeration. It's horrible the type of divisions that happen in churches. So Paul has this, this longing to see his fellow Christians. And lastly, he closes with a prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Beautiful prayer. And Paul is asking for two things for believers, and the two things are then grounded in one reality. First, Paul prays that the believers would abound in love, in particular, for one another. Paul's prayer is that we 
would love each other more and more. And then he prays that we would grow in holiness, that our hearts would be blameless in holiness. And he says, I want you to love and to grow in holiness, and that that is then grounded, the last line, in the coming of the Lord Jesus. So there's three components to this for Paul's prayer. He wants us to grow in love, grow in holiness, and ground it in the historical reality that Jesus not only rose from the dead, but that he's coming again. So first, love. And I've said this before, but we need to say it a thousand times because if you've grown up in American culture, you've heard it a billion times, both explicitly and implicitly. The Bible says we need heart change. We need our hearts to change. Why? Because our hearts aren't pure. But every message and meta-message and implicit and explicit communication about the condition of human hearts in our culture is all about how the heart is just always right. Always follow your heart. Don't ever, always listen to your heart. And all the movies reinforce it. Ariel, don't listen to your dad, the king of all the ocean kingdoms. Go to that ugly sea monster and sing some songs. Those eels aren't scary. And we think, and we, like, and we go, oh, that's such a wonderful, Ariel followed her heart. It's not reality. You know what happens to mermaids when they land on shore? They suffocate slowly and die. <laughs> Should have listened to dad. Should have listened to dad. Should have listened to dad. All of the messages, I mean, I'm making fun of it, but it's, it's serious. It's everywhere. Your heart is good. Your heart is good. Your heart is good. And I'm not saying your heart is always evil. Like you can have a heart for your kids and your loved ones. But it is scary advice just to tell people, follow your heart at all cost. It's not always right. So Paul says there has to be a heart change. And your heart has to, to change from focusing on the preservation of self and on caring for others the way Jesus did. And that heart change then leads to holiness, behavioral change. So your heart changes and then you begin to act in the world differently. And holiness is a way of saying Christians ought to behave differently than people who are not Christians. Heart change, then holiness. We love differently, and we live and behave differently. And why do we do this? Paul then grounds it in the hope of the second coming. Why is that important? Because Paul believes Jesus really did come back from the dead, and that he really will come again. And those two events, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and his second coming, functions as bookends to the present timeline that we live in. And those two realities give meaning. They infuse meaning into our lives. We live differently because those bookends give life meaning and purpose. You are not a product of random chance in an amoral universe. This world has meaning and purpose. There's a clip I'm going to show you. Um, now we're, we're, we've, we've been praying and fasting because first service, the audio just would not work, but it's been tested. Had some righteous people come and pray for it. Anoint the computer with holy oil. Some, of, some people said it's because, you know, it's we're aligned with the devil because it's, it's, it's an Apple product. 
but we rebuked them in the name of Jesus. Um, this clip is, it's, I think it's from the BBC, it's from the UK, but it's, it's going to articulate what I mean. By we live differently because we believe in a historical reality that infuses our world and our life with meaning. Justice matters. How you spend your money, your time, how you care for the poor, how you care for the needy, all of these things matter because we believe that Jesus is real and he did something and he will do something. So it's a picture of, it's, it's, a, it's a TV clip, there's a show on the BBC somewhere in the UK, and there's, these, there's panelists, and they're asking them questions. And the question is this. What, uh, what is a dangerous idea that you actually think may help humanity in the long run? It's a dangerous idea that you may think benefit humanity. Now, the first answer, honestly, is just repulsive. It's disgusting. Basically, some guy talks about population control, and then he, he basically makes a joke saying, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-choice, but sometimes I'm more than that. Maybe I'm anti-choice. Maybe we just abort babies till women are 30 to reduce the population. And what's more sick about that is that the audience is like, <laughs> oh, that's, that's so funny. Not knowing that that's not like a dangerous idea that, oh, I wonder if that would happen. That has happened. People have done it. And when that occurs, guess who dies the most? Little precious daughters. The girls are always the first ones to be killed. And it didn't just happen in some weird, obscure country. It's happened to millions on a systematic level by educated people. It's not just a funny, cute idea. It's reality. But everyone just applauds. Hey, maybe there should be less people. Maybe we could just abort babies to keep the population down. Now, then the response is given to someone else who... Um, I, I knew very little of, I actually knew more of his brother. Um, his, the guy on the show is, is named Peter Hitchens, uh, popular in the UK, on the other side of the ocean, but his brother was uh, pretty famous in America by the name of Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens passed a few years ago, but he was one of the world's leading atheists. And even though like, I'd watch the videos and disagree a lot with what he said, I, I, I really like Christopher Hitchens. He's like, He's got an accent, so whatever he says, like on, when he's being like super deep and witty, it just sounds cooler to me. And he's sharp, like the dude is, is super smart. His rhetoric, his dry humor, his, his, his wit is so sharp, and he'd do public debates with all kinds of people. What I liked about him is he's just like this grouchy, angry, super stubborn guy who believes what he believes and isn't afraid to say it. So even though he disagreed with Christians, most of the time he, he got like pushback. It wasn't from Christians. It was from other people who he stubbornly would like insist, no, you're wrong and you're illogical. And guess what? You're stupid if you believe that t type of thing. And of course, like the more fleshly version of myself just loves that. You know, Christians, you're supposed to argue gracefully and, and show compassion. I, com I mean, sometimes, it, you know, there's a part of you that just wants to make people look dumb. And if you can't admit that, you're either righteous or a liar. Um, <laughs> but he was like that. Now, he's an atheist, though. But his brother is like his perfect twin. Grouchy, snarky, witty, same accent, looks the same, same manners, everything. But he's a Christian. He's just the Christian version of the dude. It's like an identical twin. Everything about him is the same. Even the way they move their neck is the same. Just one believes in God and one doesn't. And so on this show, they ask the idea, what is the most dangerous idea? 
and I want you to, I, I've edited it because there, there's, there's a little bit of cussing, so the audio goes out, that's normal, and then it comes back, but I want you to see how the audience responds to a ridiculous idea, and then I want you to see what one man who is stubbornly standing upon the truth that he knows in Christ is saying it to the, to the public audience. It has everything to do with infusing the world with meaning. Let's see if it works. I'm going, we're we're yes. nearly out of time, I'm sorry to say. I'm going to go to a final question, which you'll all be able to respond to, and in your own way. Uh, the question comes from Lisa Malouf. Which so-called dangerous idea do you each think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? Damn, let's start with you. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> you got to give us a minute to think about that. Uh, population control. There's people on the planet. And I don't know if that's a... You know, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I believe that women should have the right to control their bodies. Sometimes in my darker moments, I'm anti-choice. I think abortion should be mandatory for about 30 years. That's a dangerous idea. She wanted a dangerous idea. So throw a chair at me. That is a very dangerous idea. I actually have to think about it for a minute. Peter. The most, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. And that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. I have to agree with that. Just quickly, uh, just, I think you can't really leave it there. Why dangerous? I can't really leave it there because it alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from meaningless chaos uh, into, a, into a designed place in which there is justice and there, and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. If, if Jesus really did die and come back and he's coming again and those serve as bookends to the lives we live, everything in our life matters. It's been infused with meaning. Morality, justice, ethics, how you live, these things matter. The, the Apostle Paul in the Bible, there's verses that talk about, they actually say like, if, what if Jesus really didn't come back from the dead? Paul the Apostle says, if Jesus really didn't rise, if that was not a historical reality, Christians are the most foolish people on earth and we are to be most pitied. Why? Because we try to live differently, we behave differently, we spend our money differently, our time differently. And if, and if we're doing all that and it doesn't, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, why keep trying? What, who, live for yourself. The author of Ecclesiastes would say, live, drink, eat, be merry, for tomorrow you die, and it doesn't matter. If the, if the universe is devoid of God, we are ultimately products of random chance. And whatever meaning or purpose you have, it is an individually and socially constructed reality that you've invented to give your life artificial meaning and purpose. It's not real, it's an illusion and invention. Meaning is divorced from reality. If, however, there is a God and he has not only revealed himself in the crucified Christ and is returning again one day, everything between those two realities matters. Everything. How you talk to your spouse, how you talk to your kids, how you look someone in the eye to, to let them know I'm here and I love you. These things matter. The universe begins to be infused with purpose. Without it, you are a product of random chance. 
highly organized molecules floating around in a universe that doesn't matter and will one day collapse on itself. All of this talk about life, meaning, and purpose for the Apostle Paul takes place in context to something he calls the body. And the body is a metaphor for the church, the local gathering of believers. And so Paul says we are to gain in love and holiness and and hope of the return, and we are to do this in a life committed to one another. The ushers are going to come forward and pass out communion. We're to do this in commitment to one another. It takes place here. And and you remember the language and intensity of Paul the Apostle. How I long to see you. My brothers and sisters in Christ, how I I want to be with you. I want to know how you're doing. And before we take communion, my challenge and my wrestling is this. Are we committing to one another in the level that Paul would tell us to? I mean, think about this. Think how you choose... Think how you choose a church. And, and there's nothing in and of itself wrong with this, but it clearly isn't optimal. Let's say you just move to the air and you're gonna choose, choose a church. How, how do you do that? Well, you, you visit some churches and you go, oh, I really like the music at this church. Um, but man, the preaching's boring, man, so I think we're gonna go check somewhere else out. Or you go to church, man, the teaching is really good, but oh man, it felt like a bad audition to American Idol for worship, man. This is horrible music. And then... You know, and say, maybe you got lucky and said, man, those are the best announcements I've ever heard. I'm coming back to that church. <laughs> we choose those things based upon those reasons, and ultimately we are choosing based upon consumerist reasons. We're consumers, and so we, we approach things through a consumerist mentality. How does this work for me? How do I like it? For Paul, the reason why you chose a church or a local gathering of believers, it was because you were now committing yourself to one another in common mission before Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter if things were boring Sunday. What matters is you are committing to one another and getting on a mission and purpose under the banner of Jesus. So one of the things we do here, and I hate the word, we have like church membership. And we've tried to think of better words for church membership, but we, we never can. If you have a great one, you can email me. They all have pros and cons. But the point of like membership, this is the point of joining a church. Whatever you've heard about, it's not this. Joining a church means I am committing to the people and the mission of that local body, and I'm committing myself. And so my question for you today is this. What is your commitment level? And I'm not saying go sign up for a membership class. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Are you praying for the people in this church? We have an amazing prayer ministry. There's emails that go out about what are the needs in this church? Are we praying for each other regularly? Maybe you need to join a small group because you're kind of, you're not connected relationally with anyone at the church. Maybe you need to start serving in an area because you're not connected to the mission of the church. My question is, do you need to step up your game, your level of commitment within this body? How can you grow in love and holiness within this current context? Maybe it's giving. Maybe you need to start using your resources to further the mission of this body of believers. Whatever it is, God, I want you to be convicted and inspired to make that change. And that's the challenge for today. We're gonna take communion and sing a closing song together. And this is what I want everyone's kind of minds to be, to be focused on. Communion is an activity where we ground ourselves in a past event and fix our eyes to a future event.
Communion does two things simultaneously, always. You look back and say, Christ died for me and resurrected and is the Lord. That's in the past. And you look forward to the other bookend, his second coming. And you take communion in the present of those two events, knowing that everything in between them matters. Life is infused with meaning and purpose. It matters. You're suffering. If you're suffering today, your suffering matters. If you're in a good time and you're not suffering, your pleasant time right now, it matters. How can you use whatever life circumstances you are in for God's glory? It matters. And so, um, this bread is symbolic. It it represents Christ's body broken for us. Um, And as we eat this, I want us to, to reflect on the fact that Christ body, his physical body was broken so that he might form a new body, a new family of neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, rich nor poor, that type of family. His body breaks to give us one another. This, yes, is about forgiveness and grace, but it's also about how God makes us family. So let's take the bread. Secondly, the, the, the juice, the wine, represents the blood. And the blood um, in the Old Testament symbolized life. So when we drink of the juice or the wine, it's a symbol. It's an old symbol, 2,000-year-old symbol that says Christ gave his life for us. That our lives wouldn't be devoid of meaning or purpose. That we wouldn't remain dead in our sins. But that we could experience forgiveness and the knowledge of comfort of Jesus in the present. And as we take this, we experience that now with our eyes fixed on the future where the king does come and judge righteously. Let's drink of the cup. We're gonna close and sing a song about the work of Jesus. And wherever you're at today, in good time or bad times, know, know in your heart and in your spirit and in your mind that you live between those two realities and it matters. This life matters. So let's turn to Jesus and exalt him in these closing time. Father God, um, we thank you for the bread and the, the, the wine. We thank you for what they represent. And as we gather right now as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, may the name of your son be exalted. May we lift his name high. May he be exalted in our hearts, that he would be central in our life, that the gravitational force of our entire reality would be your son. Thank you, Lord, that we live with meaning and purpose and we walk in forgiveness and grace. And I thank you for this church. Thank you for the people in this room. There's not a week that goes by that someone doesn't tell me a story about how someone in this church went above and beyond to help them. We thank you for each other. May we grow in love for one another and in our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.